Hello, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you the fifth Aliyah of the Sidra of Shofatim. Aliyah 5 continues the theme of the previous Aliyah regarding the prohibition of using the abominable divination techniques that were used by the Canaanites uh, in the land that Israel was about to conquer. Because these nations that you are conquering, they listen to the magicians and the soothsayers, but that's not what God has provided for you. It seems to me that God is saying, yes, people need to see beyond what's physically in front of them. They need to get a sense of the supernatural, the spiritual, the mystical world. But not like this, not like these ways, which are inherently abominations. Rather, God will now provide the following kosher ways to be able to see into the unseen. A prophet amongst, from amongst you, meaning an Israelite prophet, not a Bilam type of prophet, just like me, i.e. just like Moshe who is speaking, the Lord your God will sit up for you, you will listen to him. And now Moshe reminds them why they can't just speak to God directly, which would be the easiest way to go about it, why they will have to go through a middleman. This is just the way you asked for it from the Lord your God at Chorev, a.k.a. at Mount Sinai, on the day of the gathering. That's the day that you heard the Ten Commandments, which we now call Shavuot, but apparently then was called Yom HaKahal, the day of the gathering, saying, let me not continue to hear the voice of the Lord my God, and let me not continue to see this great fire, so I won't die. It's interesting that Moshe is putting the quote in first person, whereas it was a group or national quote. It was, so we won't die, back in Ve'et Hanan. And perhaps Moshe is trying to say, listen, Every single one of you asked for the same thing. So don't come back to me later and say, not me, I wanted to hear it directly from God. All of you said that you needed a middleman. As I mentioned back in Parshat Ve'etchanan, Moshe was nervous about being a middleman, since there's always a chance that people will doubt the middleman, either that he got it right or that he heard it at all. But hearing directly from God what's called experiencing a theophany is simply more than a standard human can bear. And that's what the people were telling Moshe. And God agrees with the Israelites. God said to me, they have spoken well, meaning they're right. And you, Moshe, are, well, less right. So do what they say. And now we get uh, we hear part of the conversation from God to Moshe that we didn't hear before in Parshat Vayat Hanan. And based on God's words, Moshe must have said something like, listen, perhaps... Uh, a middleman, uh, or perhaps I will work out now, but what will happen in future generations? So God is saying, so God says, a response, Navi akim lahem mikerav achehem kamocha v'natati devarai befiv v'diber Elohim et akol et kol asher atzavenu. I will set up a prophet for them from amongst their brothers, just like uh, I set you up. Uh, I don't think it means just like you, because he can never be as great as, as Moshe, but it means just like I set you up, and I will put my words, or really my instruction in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him to say. Again, when God says Kamocha, it's not that that Navi will be at the same level, that prophet will be at the same level as Moshe. He wouldn't have to be, since Moshe had the responsibility of giving the Torah, the definitive word on how to behave as a nation and the laws of a God. The future prophets would only have to give 
give more localized instructions or Torot, such as make war on this nation, but not that nation, build a temple here and now, but not there, things like that. So they wouldn't need the same level as Moshe, but they would be provided with somebody who would help them communicate, pe- a way for that, for people to tap into God. Cause, cause Moshe, God is saying, listen, people do need to tap, uh, into God, into the unseen, and this is the way that it will be done. And should any person fail to listen to my instructions that he, i.e. the prophet will speak in my name, I will hold that person accountable. Another way to understand this is it's actually a commandment that when a prophet hears a prophecy, he's not allowed to suppress it, which means, so I would translate that as, if any person receives a prophecy from me and refuses to speak my words to the people, I will hold him accountable. So you could read that verse uh, either way. Of course, now we have to deal with the possibility of false prophets. Uh, How do the people know that the prophet is telling the truth or heard anything? So at the time, God explained it uh, to Moshe, who was now repeating it to the nation. That is, this, again, is a conversation that was had at, at Mount Sinai during the whole, I'm setting up a middleman methodology. And Moshe is now uh, uh, repeating it back, even though we didn't, we've never heard it before. But the prophet then transgresses intentionally uh, to speak some words. It's very interesting that word Yazid, as to do it intentionally, as if somebody who thinks he heard God and said, you know, I heard God said this, but, you know, he was really just mistaken. This, that's not, I guess, what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody who really tries to speak in God's name because there's an advantage to speak in God's name and he knows that he never heard such a thing. Um, in any event, some person who speaks an instruction in my name, that which I did not command him to speak, or if he speaks in the name of other gods, uh, that Navi, that prophet must die. It's interesting that saying something like, oh, Apollo and Zeus told me to keep the Shabbat is just as bad as saying that God told me to keep the Shabbat when God did not tell you to do so. Not keeping the Shabbat, but some other, that is, that is, apparently it's just as bad to quote God when God didn't speak to you as it is to speak in another God's name. Both are, I don't know if they're equally as bad, but they both get a death penalty punishment. And the rabbis point out what's inherently in this, in this verse. Even if they say a true thing, a good thing, even if they say God wants to keep your Shabbat better, if he claims to hear it from God, if he says, Ko Amar Hashem, and, and, and he never heard it from God, then he must be punished. In any event, how will the people know if the prophet is really speaking for God? So there are two tests. In chapter 13, it was the, the, we had the easier test, which is no prophet can ever contradict what was written in the Torah. So if he does so, he's lying. Uh, there are some interesting exceptions, like by Eliyahu Anavi at Carmel, the showdown uh, uh, with the prophets of Baal at Har Carmel, but that's not our issue here. Um, here, the check to see if the prophet is telling the truth is more challenging philosophically, and we won't be able to get into all the details, but I'll try one possibility. And when, or if, you will say to yourselves, how do I know which, or if, the commandment was not spoken by God. Meaning, how do I know if this guy is not just making it up? So, as follows. If the prophet speaks in the name of God, meaning, he doesn't just say, well, I think this is what God wants you to do as best as I can tell. But he specifically says, so says the Lord, and what he said does not come about. That is the thing which the Lord did not say, the prophet spoke wrong intentionally, do not fear him, which means punish him, 
don't fear that he has some kind of supernatural power. But now here's the challenge. How could this be referring to a prophet that made a conditional prophecy? I'll give you an example. Let's take Yonah. Yonah says in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But what he really means, and the rest of the prophecy inherently is, unless you do tshuva, unless you stop doing the following sins, because they stopped doing sins, and guess what? They didn't get destroyed. Which means the prophecy is, in 40 days, I guarantee Nineveh will be destroyed, unless you change your ways, in which case it won't. So what happens is, is the challenge and the danger of being a prophet. It's a dangerous job. Because if you're really good, then the very things that you predicted do not come to pass because you're trying to keep them from coming to pass. You're trying to change the people's ways and change the inevitable course by putting the train on a different track. So in the end, people could just say, hey, it was this false prophet. Like Nimbe was destroyed. Yonah must have been wrong. Uh, nothing would have happened. We should have kept doing what we were doing. It's a tough business being a prophet since a great and successful prophet eventually turns out to look like a false prophet, especially to the cynical. And perhaps, so, so it's hard to say, you know, Yonah was not a false prophet when Ninveh was not destroyed, so that doesn't really fit with what is described here in the Torah. So perhaps the Torah here is referring to a more narrow case where the prophet says, uh, the Lord says he wants you to do something. The people say, show me a sign that his words are true, like Moshe with the snake and the staff. And, um, and he, so he gives a specific sign, such as Isaiah did, where he said, before this baby is weaned from his mother, the following would happen. So if the prediction of the future is not part of the prophecy, that is, if you keep doing this sin, the following future will happen, but it's, this is what's going to happen, and if you want to know the, tr- the proof, I'll give you kind of like a side prediction as a test. If that side prediction doesn't happen, then he's a false prophet. There's obviously much more to this, but it would take many lessons to explore the nature of what is true prophecy, what is tall, false prophecy, what a prophet can really do, and what he can't do. So let's move onward to the next topic, which begins in chapter 19, the beginning of chapter 19. <speaking in Hebrew> When the Lord your God will cut down the nations from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a lot of stress on the Lord your God, which I'll get to in a second, and you will conquer them and you will dwell in in their cities and in their houses, set aside three cities inside of your land that the Lord your God is giving to you to inherit or to conquer. Set up the roads and divide the third, divide in thirds the borders, meaning four sections of the land from north to south, divided by three cities in the middle. Divide your land that the Lord your God is giving you for your portion, and it will be a refuge for all those who kill. Now, as we will see, all killers will run away there, but only certain type of killers will be able to remain there. Uh, again, I said there's a heavy repetition on the expression that the Lord your God is giving you. And I think the sense here is that while the land is yours on one hand, it's your land, on the other hand, it comes from me, it comes from God. And if God wants some of it used for his purposes, and it's interesting because God's going to select some pretty prime real estate. So regardless how high the real estate prices go, these cities have to uh, serve as essentially refuge for uh, for killers, which uh, probably won't do lots to the uh, lots for the uh, for the high prices in the neighborhood. 
And now the specific type of killer that can seek refuge and stay in refuge is defined. This is the type of killer that can run away there and continue to live, that is, survive there. He who strikes down his compatriot unintentionally without prior hatred or without prior intent uh, against him, meaning, loosely speaking, manslaughter. And now the Torah gives a specific example, although it's only a, a, a paradigm, an example for many types of cases, but the Torah singles out a, a single clear case. He who comes with his compatriot to a forest to chop wood. And what that means is a guy comes to the forest and he knows that there are other people around. It's not like he thought he was alone. And he swings the axe to cut the wood or, or the tree, meaning the reason why I use the word it means he swings it with force, that is, with uh, with potential. He knows that his force is strong enough to kill should it land on a person. And the iron slips from the wood and finds his compatriot, meaning it strikes him. Now, clearly not intentionally, hence the word find. Uh, and the person dies, that is, the person who was not wielding the axe, he will escape to one of these cities and live. Now, there is some debate on the word nashal. It could be a passive or possibly an intransitive verb, and it means the blade of the axe will slip off the wood handle and go flying into someone. It could be a transitive verb, uh, uh, which means that the iron hits the wood or the tree, which causes wood to fly off the tree like shrapnel, and the shrapnel kills someone. And since this is the defining case, the different ways to understand the word nashal, and both are grammatically correct because the form is ambiguous, um, it, they will lead to different results when one tries, when a court tries to differentiate a murderer from one who simply killed through uh, depraved or irresponsible indifference. And in fact, Talmud Tractate, Makot, brings up this issue and goes into the various possible differences in how to apply the law. But in general, we can say that what we're talking about is someone who, while he had absolutely no intention to kill anybody else, he knew that what he was doing was potentially lethal. He knew there were other people around. And as a result, he shows depraved or, or at least very irresponsible indifference to human life. And it's obvious that the case of the woodcutter is simply an example of uh, of cases. You can come up with all kinds. It's fun to come up. Not fun, but it's interesting to come up with other cases. Somebody who sells you a car with says that they're brand new tires, but they are in fact uh, uh, cheap tires, and the tires blow, the car goes out of control and kills somebody. There are all kinds of interesting cases that you can come up with, and oral law goes into even more details about the you know the direction of the blow, up or down, and, and various other circumstances. In any event, the cities must be set up in easy to get to locations with well established roads. Why? Pen your dof goel adam Less the goel hadam, literally the blood avenger, and I'll talk more about that in a second, will chase after the killer in his, that is, in the avenger's infuriation, and because the road is too long, that is, it's too hard to get to these cities of refuge, he will strike him down outside of the city of refuge, when he does not, that is, the killer does not deserve the death penalty, since he, the killer, did not kill with prior intent or anger or hatred.
And that is why I command you to set aside these three cities. The language seems to indicate that everyone gets to run to the cities of refuge to keep the blood avenger from taking matters into his own hands. That is, there's the potential before the court, is, the guy gets brought to court, that this guy is going to kill, you know, if, if God forbid somebody lost a loved one, they're going to just go bananas and, and kill. So everybody apparently gets to run away to the cities of refuge. And then, after the court case, if the person is decided that he's a real murderer, the avenger will in fact get a chance to kill him along with uh, 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 the witnesses, but again, only after a fair and public trial. If the trial shows that it was just depraved indifference, if or irresponsible indifference to human life, if the guy is just mans- did manslaughter, then the killer is taken back from the court to the city of refuge, and we make sure that the the avenger cannot take law into his own hands. And you may you may say. If the guy is proven that he did not kill with intent, then why should why should he live in exile? Why should he be punished? But the fact is, someone is dead, and this person could and should have prevented. There's a price to pay, and he's got to pay that price, and therefore he must live in exile. And if he comes out of exile, the Goel, the Avenger, the Goel Hadam, has every right to kill him. And if the Lord your God expands your borders as was promised to your forefathers and he gives you all the land that he said he would give to your forefathers and that will happen when you keep this commandment to do it as I am commanding you today that is to love God and go in, in his ways every day then you will increase another three cities on these. First, this section is interesting because the verse seems to equate the commandment of setting up the cities with the general and overarching commandment to love God and follow all of his commandments. And this kind of fits with what we saw in Parshat Ve'et Hanan, which is right before Moshe started giving the Torah. He sort of, there was a, the narrative was interrupted where it described him setting up the three cities of refuge on the east bank of the Jordan uh, River, on the uh, on the Jordanian side of the Jordan uh, River, on Ammon and Moab's side, so to speak, although it wasn't Ammon and Moab's territory. It was the two and a half tribes. Anyway, getting back to what I was saying, um, and to my mind, what that seems to indicate is that, listen, before we get to the actual laws, we have to make sure that a just system is set up, one which guarantees or avoids anarchy and vigilanteism. And that's a first fundamental step to keeping all God's laws. Because if everybody is chasing everybody else with an axe and everybody gets to decide who lives and who dies, then there's no chance for stable society. And then there's no chance for nation building. Without a stable society, a stable nation, there really can't be a chance to follow the Torah the way it's supposed to uh, be followed. So in some way, these laws would seem very sort of secondary are in some ways fundamental to the keeping of the whole Torah itself. Uh, now, there are two ways to understand this verse regarding uh, making three cities on these three. Uh, so either Al-Shalosh-Elu is referring to the East Bank cities, uh, the ones on the East Bank of the Jordan River, and saying that after they were set up, and now you, Israel, are about to enter and conquer the land, if you follow the law, and therefore God allows you to be successful in, co- in conquering the land of Canaan, uh, from the West Bank of the Jordan River all the way to the ocean, uh, then you must set up an additional three, which means six in total. Another interpretation is that Al-Shalosha'elu is referring to the three ones that were designated on the west bank of the Jordan River, and that if you're really, really good and God expands your territories to sort of greater Israel from Mesopotamia all the way to Egypt, then you have to make sure that to set up another three, meaning a total of nine, to make sure people can run away 
uh, in the appropriate circumstance. Now, the next section explains the importance and the reason for these cities and raises the very important idea of of Damnaki. Now, literally, Damnaki means innocent blood. But I will attempt to show that Damnaki really means any miscarriage of justice that causes the innocent to be uh, persecuted and prosecuted. Uh, since a miscarriage of justice actually often did result in the spilling of innocent blood, so the same term is used, Damnaki. But I will try to uh, attempt to demonstrate that Damnaki refers not just to a, a miscarriage of justice that causes the loss of life, but any perversion of justice or miscarriage of justice. So the Torah says, if you set up these cities, Damnaki will not be spilled in the midst of your land that your Lord, the Lord your God is, is giving to you as your lot. And if it does spill, it will be as blood upon you, meaning you, the ones who are responsible, if you did not set up these refuge cities, and you're the ones responsible for not setting them up, then the, whatever innocent blood was killed when a non-murderer uh, had his blood spilled, then it will be as if you spilled it. And now comes the opposite possibility, which I think shows that Damnaki is broader than just simply actual spilling of blood. So the situation is as follows. Should there be a man who hates his compatriot, who ambushes him, or rises against him, and strikes him with lethal force, and he dies, which means he's an intentional murder, then he, the murderer, and if he, the murderer, or runs away to one of these cities of refuge. The elders of a city must send a delegation and take him from there that is out of the city of refuge and give him over to the blood avenger, meaning obviously after the elders of the city have tried him and determined that he is guilty as charged and he will be killed. You must not show pity for him, which means not pity up to the point where where injustice is made, and you must burn away the innocent blood from Israel, as it will be, and it will be good for you. Uh, which means for your nation, it will be stable, it will create stability in your nation. Now here is where I think the word damnaki clearly does not just mean blood literally, since the person to be killed here is not innocent. He was an actual murderer. And Damnaki, I don't think, is referring to the blood of the innocent person who the murderer murdered because nothing's going to bring him back from the dead. He can't you can't burn that away. That guy's dead. There's nothing you can do about it. So what are you burning away when you take this real murder, this potential murder, out of the refuge cities? So what you're doing is you're, you're carrying out the sentence against the murderer. You're not letting him get away with, well, you're not letting him get away with murder. And therefore, if you do let him get away with murder, that's Damnaki. If you put him to death, you purify the Damnaki, which means you purify a miscarriage uh, of justice and leaving behind a just and viable society. And that ends uh, the issue of the um, the cities of refuge and murder and manslaughter. And the next Aliyah will move on to a new subject regarding the land of Israel.